man, 2020, what a damn shit show. Thanks to the amazing folk at Bella Catering who have survived the COVID-19 outbreak in Australia as we are starting to wake back up for sponsoring and bringing us this week's show. If you guys want to cater, and you're in Oz, bellacatering.com.au. Catering doesn't mean planning a huge event. It might just mean that for the first time in many months, you've been able to have a stack of your friends and family over and who the hell wants to cook? You're probably doom scrolling through your Twitter, shitting bricks that now North Korea is firing off shit at South Korea. Go to bellacatering.com.au. Get off Twitter just for a split second. Thank you for listening. Bellacatering.com.au. Now, all the President's Minutes. Now more than ever, Australia cannot afford to be unreconciled. We must accept that this nation is in transition, confronted by the necessity of the voice to Parliament, constitutional recognition, truth-telling and agreement-making. We must avoid going down the path of seeing history as a set of competitive narratives and instead work towards the pursuit of truth and respect. We need a political settlement on questions of national independence, integrity and um, identity. 250 years of avoiding these fundamental questions has handicapped us as a nation from navigating the complex challenges before us and left us unable to capitalise on the great opportunities of uh, a future together. We feel this confusion in our public discourse with well-meaning policy objectives failing uh, to meet the expectations of modern multicultural Australia. Standards we recognise when crossed but seem unwilling to speak about uh, honestly. We've seen generations of political leaders come and go, blindly clutching for a sense of common ground, common identity, without addressing the darkness of dispossession and racism, keeping us chained to the ethnocentric understanding of Australia's identity, one that has never really been true. We have a system unable to understand or celebrate diversity and difference. And First Nations are left to deal with a bureaucratic machine that has often been a tool more of oppression than of liberation. The path forward has been offered to us through the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The Parliament must honour that call and listen to the torment of the powerlessness that continues to haunt this place. Only then will we continue on the path of reconciliation built on honour, equality, recognition and respect, and free from racism. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Um, uh, joining me is a real friend of One Heat Minute Productions, uh, a, a staggeringly talented author. Uh, and, uh, I mean, if you haven't read his book, She Rides Shotgun, you should because it is simply people have said this phrase to me so many times unputdownable but i defy you to put that book down once you pick it up uh he yeah. is a film mind that i love talking to because he's also a screenwriter he wrote the terrific 
uh, LA Confidential pilot who, in an alternative universe, I would propose it would be the only cop show that would still be allowed to be left on air with The Shield um, right now in our time. Thank you. Uh, and, and just someone who is an incredible historian for both LA gang and LA police culture. And so right now, when you're talking about a film that intersects politics and journalism and history, in this moment, this guy is someone who, despite it not directly talking to it, but being so about it, all the president's men and all the president's ministers is a show that I wanted to talk to him on. My good friend, Jordan Harper. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, especially when I get introduction like that. <laughs> well, I just have to try and outdo myself. You've been back many times. I just need to uh, uh, qualify. But look, I've wanted to talk to you because, you know, in the swelling and brazen police violence that we've just been seeing and then the incredible outpouring of solidarity and people getting out there to peacefully protest and 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 just the, I think, level of international attention squarely on the shoulders and starting to see these police actually back down in different states and things like that. I was like, right now this show is is talking about politics in such a way that it would be it would be negligent of me not to engage with what is happening right now because this movie is so much about it. it you know, the new Hollywood era and the social and uh, societal change that was happening that charges this movie and charges this era feels like something that we're charging right into right now. And you and I have both, um, uh, uh, you as an LA resident, me as an Australian have been unhealthily uh, tackling Twitter and holding our phones and diving and consuming all this stuff. But it's just something that I feel like it's right now, it's a ripe for a conversation to talk about journalistic, journalistic ethics truth to power and, you know, I guess being on the right side of history with a story like this. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really tall order. And I, I guess I could start by, if you happen to follow me on Twitter, uh, anyone listening, and you haven't muted me yet, I apologize. <laughs> um, like, I know that nobody, nobody who does follow me goes, oh, Jordan Harper, well, I, I need to follow him so I can get uh, prison abolitionists retweeted on my timeline every 20 minutes. Um, it, 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 but it's a weird moment where it actually feels, and this does tie in, into the movie, it actually feels like for once in our life, posting is actually taking action. Uh, posting is practice, if yes. you will, just for like this one moment, because I really did see something happen over the last couple of weeks as somebody who is very left wing and very interested in, in the problems of policing and, and, uh, where I've seen like a real sea change amongst a lot of people. Um, and, and this, I feel like for once Twitter for a little while is actually a, a, a force of good. <laughs> and, you know, the constant exposing of people to the brutality, I think has really opened a lot of uh, eyes. I mean, look, this stuff was always there. Um, I just got a new book um, called uh, the new Mike Davis book. Mike Davis wrote like one of the, uh, like, classic histories of Los Angeles city of course. And now he has a new book out with a co-author whose name escapes me, I'm afraid, uh, that is about the history of Los Angeles in the sixties, specifically uh, focusing on, on the black experience and what led to the Watts riots and stuff. And like, but this stuff is eternal. And, you know, um, a thing that occurred to me, and I, if I've said this on the podcast before, forgive me, but when I did the LA confidential pilot, we sold it as it was written in 1954. And, 
obviously everybody who's an Elroy purist, including myself, thinks that's what you should do because that's the book set in 1954. If I was trying to sell that now as a TV show, I think I would say it's LA Confidential, but it's set in 1984. Yes. Um, and every plot line that was in the book LA Confidential would work in 1984. Um, some of them might work better. Some of them might work better. Yeah. <laughs> some of them might work better, but that, that the intersection of racism and police corruption and celebrity and gossip, all of that stuff, it was still works in 1984 and frankly, still works today because in a lot of ways, um, LA is this, it's, 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 it's an eternal city. It hasn't had to change that much from when it kind of got locked into what it was. It's probably, I don't know whenever the movie industry started early like 1920s is when it really started to become the Los Angeles that we think of it as today. Um, and, uh, boy, I don't know how I got into this backwater. Um, <laughs> here we are. Um, and you know, no, like I, I'm, I, I won't talk too much about it. I'm writing a novel set in what I said to you already is what I was calling right now, Los Angeles, but it's going to have to be 2019 because I want there to be restaurants and people meeting face to face in it. Um, and it was a lot driven from this idea that I could write a James Elroy novel and just set it in 2019 and really would have the same true insanity of, of what this city is. But, you know, again, this moment is about a lot more than that. And I remember where I was going. Twitter serves a function that the press is currently failing to do. Yes. And, you know, there is this idealization of journalism in this country that started with this movie, All the President's Men. And I'm not saying the movie is wrong. I'm saying that either that moment has passed or there was something flawed from the get-go that we need to reevaluate. And this idea that pure objectivity and, and, and playing both sides and giving both sides equal weight and chance to respond, it doesn't work anymore. And here's the, the truth to get to the end of the movie what we've learned from Donald Trump is that it wouldn't have worked in 2020. Um, Watergate would not bring down a president today. Um, no. And it's because you can say now that old man was an Antifa super soldier and he fell backwards harder than he was pushed. <laughs> and everybody knows it's not true, but they're still going to print it. You know? And maybe they'll say, well, look, but we print this other quote from another guy who says it's not true. But you've already, you've debased the conversation by even acknowledging that the other viewpoint exists. And, and that's how these guys learn to short circuit journalism. It's, there's a conversation that's one of the recent episodes, Jess Hill, who's an investigative journalist in Australia and a novelist and was mm. covering domestic violence in Oz. And she's a, allowed a journalist here and was lucky enough to go to a, a conference where Bob Woodward was talking and Jess has been prior to her investigative journalism in domestic violence in Australia has been an international correspondent and has been to other countries, war torn countries. And she remembers this speech by Woodward and you would expect, you know, Bob Woodward, it's going to be this great inspirational speech. And she, she just remembers at the time him talking about what you can now say is an obsolete stasis of journalism, which he was like, this is me 
you know, I would knock on people's doors. I would do this. And she remembers sitting in the audience so vividly and running up to a couple of foreign correspondents and other people from, you know, these war-torn countries who happened to be at this conference and goes, how would your, uh, how would some of the dictatorial, you know, armed forces or corrupt military <laughs> people like you knocking on their door in the morning? Do you reckon you'd get an AK-47 in the face? And, and I sort of laughed that off because it was, when we were recording it, it was at the, it, it, it the, the devastating passing of George Floyd hadn't happened in the latest um, and and most essential and I think you know most important round of civil unrest in the United States and international response hadn't happened. But now more than ever, I think about that all the time. I think about this journalist. Mm. I always joke, Jordan, that like, what if Nixon had Twitter? Like, wouldn't yeah. it be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing? <laughs> wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a hilarious thing? But it's like this guy says things that are just he treats factual things with the level of disrespect that like he hasn't earned a seat at the table like you, mm-hmm. you, you bet you can barely engage with the words that come out of this guy's mouth because it's like he doesn't have a barometer for right wrong true false at least with nixon his hubris was one of those things that like despite all of the bad things that he A did and B endorsed, and we can read the transcripts of his conversations about sort of political fuckery. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, this guy wanted to be, he wanted to be a hero. He held himself yeah. to such high such high esteem and had such hubris that he was like he wanted to be the greatest president in the United States ever. And that comes with people liking you. He wanted to yeah. be liked. And the inverse of that, like, so, you know, I think someone said that um, Trump is Nixon squared. And I don't know, I don't know how quite that math works, but it's like there's something missing in Trump that Nixon always had. And it seemed like that, 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 whether it was detached, you know, self evaluation of like, I'm really a good person underneath this, I'm making the right decisions because I'm the right person to make these decisions on behalf of the country. Whether mm-hmm. it's that, I don't know what it is, but I just, I think that, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that there are many journalists right now who are working, who have thought that the moment that they had a Watergate on their hands for this president was there. They're like this, here it is. We've got it. Yeah. And it hasn't materialized. Uh, Yeah. And, And in fact, I think that, again, I don't think it can. Yes, I, I think we've moved past a period of time when uh, when you can do that. And I guess you know maybe the the word you're looking for it is shame. Yes, if you're looking for what Nixon had, yeah, he had shame. Um, <laughs> yes, he had shame. He, he knew to like to be ashamed of some of his darker impulses. Um, you know, uh, he was motivated like Trump a lot by resentment. Um, there's an amazing, if you've never read it, and I don't know how interesting it would be to you, but to anybody like uh, listening, Nixon Land by uh, Rick Perlstein is an amazing book. It's, I don't know, 700 pages long. Um, and it's a history of the 60s as told like kind of through the prism of, of Richard Nixon's career. And uh, he paints a, a really ugly portrait of the man, uh, uh, a guy who was very angry that he had kind of been shunned by the, by the prettier people, the richer people. And he weaponized that. And uh, mm. Pearlstein's argument is essentially that that's how he won and won and won in this country 
was by harvesting the anger and resentment of a lot of people who didn't like cool celebrities, who didn't like, um, you know, the pretty people. And, um, you know, again, I think we're seeing that again right now that essentially he started this culture war in this country that has now reached the point where we can't, the difference between now and then is back then we at least agreed what facts were for the most part. Yes. Um, and now there's literally no fact that can't be debated. Um, you know, is the virus real or isn't it? Was, was that old man pushed or wasn't he? Um, is he an Antifa crisis actor? Yes. An exactly, Asian with blood bags, with a, uh, with a cackle bladder taped to his head to, to get the blood to squirt out. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting to go back to this movie and, and see just the, the dogged pursuit of journalism that is, that, but I guess the question that I'm kind of asking now is, was it a fluke? Was it a fluke? Was there something special about these guys? Was there something special about what they did? Or was it just a couple of pretty good journalists with a good editor who had their back and and just they kind of won a reporting lottery? And I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm literally kind of putting that out there. Yeah, I think I think that's what is it, Occam's razor? That's close mm-hmm. that's closer than I mean, Hollywood inherently romanticizes things, as you know. Like it's a romantic yeah. notion. Um, and, and these journalistic guys as heroes is something, but I genuinely think it is, it is un it is simply just uncompromising. These two uncompromising guys who are hungry and they even say that word in the film, have you been hungry, not willing to give up and then having the editorial curation to back them and keep making them lift, like lift you've got to go higher. You've got to be better. You've got to be more precise. You've got to have better sources. And it's also just the time, like, you know, some of the journos I've spoken to, and you would know as a screenwriter, sometimes filing things for deadlines and things like that. It's so much better when you've got a deadline. I personally find, cause you just get that, oh, yeah. you get that motivation, but these guys could luxuriate, you know, and, and the, this film doesn't, show what they had to do. But at the same time as this, these guys are doing their day job. They're still reporting on a whole mm-hmm. slew of other things, but they're continuing their, their Watergate reporting and their investigation all on the side at the same time. And I, I think that that's a very close statement. You've got two guys who are in the right place at the, the right place at the right time that maybe at the beginning of this journey were absolutely, you know, not the savant prodigious journalists you, that maybe later on you've imagined them to be, they are just workaholics, hungry, mm-hmm. no connections, obsessive, and had the right oversight to keep them driving in the same, in the right direction because the stakes were so impossibly high. Um, and yeah. and and I, but also like you said, the the great thing that resonates with me in this is just the morality of facts. Oh no, they mm-hmm. wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. They're, they're talking to Republicans this whole time. Woodward himself is a he says he's a Republican, and it's like. They wouldn't do that. Why would they do that? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do that. Why would they do that? And you're like, they would do that. And they did do that. And they're going to keep doing that. Like, it's it's just one of those things. It's like over and over and over again. No, they would do it. They are doing it. This is this is what happens. Yeah. And so I think that, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is about. It shows the power of, it shows the power of semantics to me because I you watch, you watch the same news item come across two different channels. One is a more progressive leaning thing, 
both you and I are, are, are liberals, you know, in the American sense, progressives, you know, uh, people um, on the left wing. And we watch that and you go, yeah, there's some facts and you can definitely see that they're, you know, sticking a little bit of a boot into Donald Trump, which is totally fair in the modern context. And then you go to Fox News and people are like, they flip it on its head. Like you get like a yeah. Tucker Carlson and you see that Sesame Street is, you know, there's Elmo on Sesame Street talking about, hey, you know, black people have had it bad. And then Tucker Carlson interprets that as like, hey, little Timmy, America's broken and it's your fault. And you're like, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> how did that happen? How, how, what? What? How did they get so lost in translation? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but I said this uh, to somebody the other day when it was about, again, this old man who got pushed in Buffalo. And I said, when somebody tells you something like that guy didn't really fall, they're not actually making an argument to you. All they're doing is telling you who they are. Yes. They're, they're making a statement, not a fact, but of identity. Yes. And, and I think that's where sometimes in America we read these polls and we go, well, how could 30% of the country believe X or believe Y? And they're not saying they believe that thing. They're saying they disagree with you because you are you and they are them and there's a cultural divide. And if you, I swear, if you did a poll about, you know, Barack Obama said the sky is blue, is it? You would get 30% of people in this country who say, no, it's not. Um, and they would marshal some kind of argument about how actually light diffraction is really, uh, you know, meaningless and the sky is actually colorless and it's just how light hits our eyes or whatever it is. You know, they would make some argument, but that's not the argument. They're just telling you who they are. And, and the fact that facts have become the battlefield where we have that, it, it can drive you crazy. But really the answer is don't engage. Don't, don't try and argue with Tucker Carlson because he's not really making that argument. He's just saying, I'm a white supremacist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's what, that's what needs to be heard. And, and it's the only way, you know, look, it's the same thing. And not to, I made you laugh and now I'm going to bring up the Holocaust, but it's the same thing with Holocaust denial that if facts could, could argue with Holocaust deniers, there wouldn't be any Holocaust deniers because the Holocaust happened. Everybody knows it happened. It's been proven to happen. Uh, flat, I read flat earthers, flat earthers, flat earthers. Um, if, if facts mattered that much, then there wouldn't be flat earthers, but there are. So, you know, I think sometimes people on the left get too obsessed with, with, which, which sounds like a really good thing of like, well, this is what truth is. And that matters. Um, okay. This is going to come out of uh, left field, but, uh, so for my new novel, I, I interviewed a, I sat down with a, a publicist for Harvey Weinstein. Wow. And, uh, and they said to me, they said, I'm not saying substance isn't important. I'm just saying it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, which is like a Zen Cohen of evil in yes. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's again, like some, been, that, that sentence. The last time that sentence was said was in Nuremberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's um, in a witness box in Nuremberg. I'm not like I'm not saying that something, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, it's important, but it doesn't matter. And and uh, you know, yeah. so it's, uh, they said some other things that are, are way beyond crazy. But like, um, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, it's. I I think I think you've just put it in a in a in the right frame. It's like that. 
um, there are certain, I, I think once you've gone, if you can have a dialogue with someone and challenge an approach and like, I know with the virus, there's lots of like, you know, you can see countries as case studies. We're going to shut it all down. There was some Scandinavian countries. We're going to leave it all open. There were different mm -hmm. approaches depending on like their firstly political ideology. Secondly, uh, you know, whatever their medical professionals were like, Oh, we could do this. We could expedite herd, you know, herd, uh, uh, immunity, etc. blah, blah, blah. They different approaches. But I think that when you come down to it, I think you just said something that is part of the tension in this, but it's not relevant in the contemporary setting. It's just like, if you start to, if someone is willing to argue a base fact with you, you just, that you need to know that you can't even have a dialogue because yeah. you have to like, I, I think that the steady ground of this movie is its morality. And despite mm -hmm. the political ideology of everyone who's talking, a hell of a lot of them Republicans, like a hell of a lot of them on the conservative side going, I cannot believe that they would do this. And, or I might know that they did a little bit of it, but I didn't know that it was like this. I didn't know it was like flagrant mm -hmm. corruption, paying people off, spying, internal espionage. I didn't know it was this. And I, I just think that like, that's what these editors do. That's what these conversations do. That's what the minute does that we're talking about. It's like arguing what's important to the people yeah. who are going to be re reading that paper. And some people are emphatic about it. Some people have their ego attached to it. And other people are like, no, this is important. Like, what people should care if the government is corrupt and there's a few yeah. people in there that are like, eh, it's not the biggest story. <laughs> like, nah, it is like it, or if it might not be now, but it's starting to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and you're right. There, there's a, there's a basic question of like what matters and what doesn't. And the, the answers must've felt very different when this movie came out yeah. than they do right now. Yeah, well, look, I think I think we have we have to dive into this. We have to dive into this minute. I was just thinking, as you said that before we dive into it, is imagine you know at the time people voraciously bought and read the transcripts of the Nixon tapes, and they voraciously mm -hmm. bought and read you know the transcripts of the Watergate trials with all the wonderful, weird, maniacal characters. Um, I cannot imagine reading three pages of Donald Trump speaking. It's just, oh. it would just be. It would be like a, it, it would be, I, I, I was going to say it would be like talking to a three-year-old, but that's insulting to three-year-olds. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's a maddening, it's a maddening thing. I can't imagine that anyone sees any form of articulation, anything that makes sense. It's, it's like, it's like Jerry Springer in office, you know? Yeah. Like a Jerry well, Springer episode. you know. We're in such a, a dark and, and, and literally for a lot of people more than for me, a dangerous moment. Um, so I don't want to be too frivolous about this, but I really do believe if there's a future 150 <laughs> years from now, you know, this is going to be a moment that people are going to look at and we can't see it now. This is deeply hilarious in oh. a very dark way. Oh yeah. And he is deeply hilarious, not intentionally, but like he is a deeply hilarious character and I think it's too bad that, um, you know, the, the political satire of the moment is, is so broad and so like Alec Baldwin making fun of how orange he is when what we need is somebody with like a really sharp eye who doesn't exaggerate him at all and just presents him as what he is. Yes. And that's when we'll get a truly great like work of art about Trump. When you watch Dr. Strangelove, you mm -hmm. don't believe 
that there could be politicians like that. Yeah. Or people in the armed forces that are like that. And I was like, in, in 30 years, we're going to look back and go, no, that, that the truth of the matter was that it was even more hilarious than that. Even more extreme. Uh-huh. It's even- I'm sure you know this. The, the the old story about Kubrick that he didn't intend for that to be a comedy, no. um, but the more he learned and the more crazy it got, he couldn't handle <laughs> yes. doing it seriously. He had to do it as a comedy. Yeah, it's still the greatest production design of, you know, had NASA calling Warner Brothers and going, how the he- how the hell did you get the schematics to <laughs> a, to our uh-huh. to our rocket ships and things like that? Uh, but yeah. but yeah, had to had to do it completely ridiculously. There's a there's a cut there's a. You know, for, for, by all accounts, there's uh, and George C. Scott talks about it, is like he did like seven or eight or nine takes really dead seriously, and then Kubrick could go, "Just do me a wild one, just for," mm-hmm. and then he just assembled the all the wild ones. <laughs> so there's, there's a cut of this movie that is dead serious and scary somewhere out there. All right, let's get back to all the president's minutes. Jordan and I are going to we are going to talk uh, about how the sausage is made, so to speak, in the newsroom with Bradley and his editorial team, um, and watch them basically talk about what's important. And then we're going to come back and keep talking about things that we think are important to talk about right now and uh, and how this movie opens uh, opens the door or sets the table for us to have some of those conversations. ...on uh, district home rule. Oh, come on. Now listen to Ben, th- this, t- this time it could, it could go all the way. Uh, the House is going to vote next week on a Senate resolution. Okay, well, when they pass it, we'll run with it. Huh? Okay, fellas, let's go around again now. Farn... Uh, Taiwan emergency, Philippines. Okay, fine. National? I'll stand with the Eagleton followers from Governor not being able to get a replacement. He's offered to Humphrey Kennedy and Ribicoff. They've all turned him down. That's the page one lead right there, Howard. Well, you're ignoring the, the importance of the Dahlberg repercussions. Nobody cares about the Dahlberg repercussions. Now, look, it was our story that got the General Accounting Office to start an audit with, with, with Creep Finance. Yeah, we printed that, didn't we? When the friggin' audit's done, we'll print that, too. Now, let me tell you what happened today. I was having lunch at the San Suzuki. Oh, and this White House guy, a good one, a pro, came up and asked, "What is this Watergate compulsion with you guys?" Compulsion. I, and this I is a story. Said, this is not compulsion. Well, that's I said, "Well, we think it's important," and he said, "If it's Thanks. so goddamn important." If it's so goddamn important, who the hell are Woodward and Bernstein? Uh, mm-hmm. Such yes. a great minute. I just love the flex. The I love looking at Bradley at that table with his feet up. I just love I just love mm. how relaxed and chill he is and how everyone is vying for his attention. But it's so funny that it's so funny that like and, and I think it leads into directly what we're talking about right now is I really wonder if right now, right at this moment if we could sort of cast our eye back because we're recording this, you know, after days now weeks of protests that are happening internationally, black Lives matter protests that are happening um, after the death of George Floyd, those police um, who murdered him have been charged. There is now calls for other officers and other departments for people, um, you know, who murdered Breonna Taylor to be charged, etc. I just wonder if we could cast our, our minds back, Jordan, you and I, and sit at an editorial table on the day that that tape emerged on social media and just wonder mm-hmm. if anyone in a contemporary context was sitting at that table going, this is the final straw. I just wonder if people who were on the head of that line are going, this moment, this absolutely abhorrent act from 
these police officers and it being on, you know, for everyone to see this like eight minute video of this man slowly passing away. I wonder if there was a conversation like this in a contemporary newsroom context, <laughs> socially distant, mind you. Um, yeah. uh, but yeah. I wonder if there was a moment where people said, this is going to be, this is going to cause some really essential civil unrest in the United States of America and Australia or whether, whether they couldn't know. I wonder if in, a, in an editorial room like this, you can ever know that you're about, you're on the crest of history. I love this moment because it's quite banal. Like right now we think that it's a tipping point. They've got this huge break. It's a huge lead in the story. It's, it, unders mm -hmm. it underscores the, the huge, uh, the very idea that there's a whole bunch of malfeasance that's happening with political campaign finances. But right now, other than Harry, um, sitting there fighting for his guys, everyone else is like, meh, who cares? It's nothing. It's nothing. You know, that's a great question, and, and it's really hard to answer because you could see it both ways. I mean, again, when we talk about, you know, these, uh, these like, Watergate moments that Trump has, has slid through effortlessly, you know, I, I'm sure that whoever got their hands on that uh, uh, grab them by the pussy tape, the, the first journalist who had that, must have thought, well, this it'll be it. Woodward, Bernstein, and me, um, <laughs> right? And and they probably felt very justified that for the one week that that was a major story. And um, you know, we're in like the we're in the what do you want to say like the widening gyre right now, like everything is falling apart. Um, and, uh, and and so. The, the ability for a story to, to have the legs that it has in that, the, um, the ability for them to do these like little stories about it and not be taken off of it. Um, that's a product of a whole different news era. Yes. Um, and I'm sure, you know, you've had lots of journalists on who, uh, I am, by the way, I'm a, when I say I'm a former journalist, I mean it very loosely, but I was a, I was a music writer at a alt weekly for two years and I, I ran the music section. So, I have actually been in an editorial meeting, but I'm always, you know, I would be talking about like, you know, the new Nelly album was coming out <laughs> or, or what have you. So I didn't ever have a conversation like this where I'm like, no, this is the story, boss. Um, boss, this, but, um, this new Nelly album slaps, right? We it, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm both dating myself and giving away the geography of, of where I work. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. There's something, what I, to switch just a little bit, what I like about this scene is all the other things that aren't the Watergate story being discussed are is almost as meaningless as like the babble in like a sci-fi show yes. or a medical drama. It's, you know, well, Taiwan is going to da, 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 da. And I don't know what they're talking about. And it's still so fascinating. And because we're watching people do their job and we're in this moment right now to bring it all the way back around to cop shows where people are like, well, what are we going to do if we don't have cop shows? And I don't know exactly what the answer is. But one thing I can tell you is watching people do their jobs in any kind of high stakes environment is inherently interesting. Yes. And procedurals, be they whatever procedurals you want them to be, are great ways of expanding character just the way you pointed out that Bradley has a seat on the desk. What yes. that says about him while he's doing his job and you don't have to go home with him. And I love, I love this movie. I love spotlight for the exact same reason, which is it's a fascinating story with high stakes and the people at the center of it, you meet just by watching them do their job. 
and and everything else falls away. And that is something that I think gets lost even in most modern procedurals in Hollywood. I'll tell you this, the word procedural, it's a dirty word, uh, unless you're trying to sell something to, to one of like two networks and probably not even there anymore. Nobody wants you. Nobody wants me to walk into Netflix and say, Oh, this one's a procedural. Don't worry. Um, because there's <laughs> something old fashioned feeling about it. You know, it, it's so tied now with your blue blood type shows. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, the, some of the best and longest running shows ever made ER, you know, Obviously, I mean, look, the Law & Order franchise is taking some beatings right now, and, and deservedly so, but the format of it as a storytelling device is, is dynamite, and that's why some version of that's been on the air for whatever it is now, 28 years. Or, um, and, and it's those, those professions, you know, whether it's police, those, those procedural, structural storytelling, you know, scaffolding just gets picked up and dropped into other professions too. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, here's the firefighters and here's like house, like ha yeah. ha house is like a Sherlock Holmes, like detective thing, but it's diseases. And you know, that was literally the pitch by the way. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize it, but yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is Sherlock Holmes as a doctor. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and so you've got that, that same format, that same procedural thing. And, and it doesn't, they're not a lot in there in the journalistic format. I mean, the last one was Newsroom, um, but that had a. I don't know if, I don't know if you would call. I'm trying to think if you call Sorkin a procedure guy. It's, it's no, it's, it's, he's, it's, he's it's, a it's, he's a rhetoric guy who yeah. poses as a procedure guy. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, he loves procedure movies and he loves Goldman, who loves procedure. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, he's, a he's, I, I don't remember newsroom getting to the nitty gritty in any way, shape or form like this minutia. No. And, and, and if you try and imagine an Aaron Sorkin mystery show, um, I think you, you see how it would fall apart very quickly because he doesn't actually show people doing things. He shows people talking about things. Yes. And the idea of somebody interrogating somebody, um, I, it just it, it feels like it would slip into to ludicrousness very quickly. Yes, um, and that's my Sorkin diss. <laughs> um, but um, here's a, I, totally shifting the, the topic. I was when I got my minute, uh, I was a little disappointed that it did not have a split diopter shot. Well, there's some, in it because there's a lot of split well, diopters. Here, here's my hot take for this movie. I don't like split diopter shots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like them. I, you know, hey, look, you know, go go do deep focus. You know, <laughs> go take the time, do the math. Kurosawa could do it. You know, it's in <laughs> Citizen Kane. Go out there and do deep focus. Because here's the thing, to me, and this is just me. Maybe it's not other people. I notice every split diopter shot. I notice it. I see the line of fuzz yes. between the two in focus things, and it calls attention to itself, and it takes me out of the movie. Yeah. So. Um, there's a lot of filmmaking in this movie that I really admire, and I get what they're going for with those shots, and I think the concept is cool, but I just I see the, one of those shots, and I get irritated. So there you go. There yeah, you go. That's a huge hot take. No, I also <laughs> like I like the Kane deep focus in Kurosawa. I also like the John Ford mid-focus. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of, like, and Spielberg has kind of taken that himself and run with it a lot of, like, great mid-shots where 
everything in the entire scene is so crisply uh, crisply defined and then even playing with the staging of the characters in in such ways to make the framing more dynamic because you you know if you're mm-hmm. if everything's so clear crisp and crystalline you're then going to play with the lighting and the staging of the actors to make up some really nice shots as well so yeah i think uh, i i i get a bit sick of split diopters when i feel like it's showy i think this whole movie mm-hmm. the, i i like i think it all just adds to the procedural nature of it it's like there mm-hmm. and and i think that some of it gets stripped away so the early split diopter shots there's a lot in the newsroom where especially when you're scribbling on a notepad or other people are working behind you but i think as this film tightens its focus and they become laser focused on watergate itself i think that one of the great things about it is that those shots start to fall away and it becomes way more about those guys being in focus together in the frames together the staging changes um i it's it's uh you know i was talking to really great film critic josh rothkopf in a scene just before this and he talks about the tip of the dolberg was his phrase which i i love so much that that it's the tipping point of the movie it's one of the final split diopter shots in the movie where the focus of other noise around them stops Mm -hmm. happening and the focus becomes in on those guys or these guys together because there's other noise there's and, and even this conversation is exactly that in in a more sort of enunciated way of like there are other stories but we don't care like it's it may as well be speaking klingon like we don't care what they're talking about it's how is the watergate stuff going to be played out on the front page and um and then the you know the following minute that comes up you know or the following two minutes rather where they start to actually articulate if we're the only paper on this story, are we doing the wrong thing or are we doing the right yeah. thing? It's, and and it, it, that's true. And, and, and again, I, I, I get what they're going for with the shots and, and I, it, it's really more of a, just a, a personal taste thing, but it is, it's an expertly, I think what am I saying? Like, obviously it's an expertly shot movie. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> there, there's my cold take of the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But, oh man um but no it's, what i like about this scene is, is how unremarkable it is in a lot of ways that it's it, it, you know it is covered uh, almost like a tv show would be covered you know some pretty basic shots of like here's the whole group here's one side of the table here's the guy who's making the call so that's why we're focusing on him um and again there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with this really clean muscular storytelling that is just showing the, yeah, you're right. Showing like how the sausage is made is, is how you pitched this to me at, at the first. And I just, I think even if what people are doing are trivial, but particularly if what they're doing is important, that's always fascinating. Um, here's my, are you ready for another hot take for I me? I always really was disappointed in the show Mad Men because I wanted it to be more about advertising. Um, <laughs> because yeah. I find that really interesting. I find, yes, how do you come up with these slogans? How do you do this? Um, and I, feel and like, I was I more feel interested like big, in that. I feel like big chunks of Mad Men, though, in that series, that's so fun about the Peggy character. Because you think that John Hamm is going to be, like, you think that his character, Mr. Draper, is going to be... Um, you know, he's like this savant. He goes to out to films. He thinks about things. He comes back with a slogan. The fun thing was like when they broke up their their team, their duo, the dynamic duo, mm-hmm. Peggy and him, and you saw her go off and work by herself. You actually did get to see her agonize over his like ten pitches 
and he's the only uh-huh. one that worked. And that was what was fun about that show in the, in that respect. But I, I get you. That's that's not a cult. That's not a that's not a that's not a hot take. I, I, not not I, too too sizzling a take. I, no, I I love, but I I think if you tweeted it, it would be so spicy. You know, like like you, you being able to articulate it on this show, really, really cool and calm and collected and sort of articulate. You've just spoken all about that sort of the Manny Faber termite art, like procedural, how fascinating it is, how captivating it is. But if you just like went out there one day where people were praising Mad Men and said that, I think people would, uh, if, you thought your, if you thought your mentions were already fiery, uh, I think we'd see uh, some more fire in there. I've got to get off Twitter. It's not good for you, man. It's, it's really not. It's look. It's it's an incredibly. Um, it can be an incredibly taxing space, you know. And I think that there's a lot of folk out there, you know, who feel. I, I feel grateful and fortunate that right now, and I think Wesley Morris wrote a beautiful piece for the New York Times about the most immediate and dynamic filmmaking right now is happening really on the front lines of these protests by you know young black people with their phone cameras filming brutality like you yeah. know, and, and having a, a window into this racism and brutality and systemic racism in the United States and all around the world in a way that has never been able to be shown. And, but, but that comes with the tax that it is unfiltered and that it is omnipresent. And if you are willing to like you and I are, what, what was he, what did you call it? Dooms, doom scrolling? Doom scrolling was the word I I heard. Yeah, yeah, doom scrolling. Well, Jordan and I have both now heard this phrase, which is like that you must consume every single part of it. Uh, this thing to 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 feel connected, to feel like you're you're satiated, to like figure out the end of this story. But I I feel like that's the same way. It's a really, it's both eye opening, it's illuminating, it's infuriating, um, and it keeps the fire in your belly to have these conversations about it and to and to promote really good causes and to get people out there and to, you know, get, lift the profile of things that need to be lifted and that may be being ignored. But man, it can be psychologically taxing, especially when you don't have the luxury of physical contact and face-to-face and being able to talk to people face-to-face. Yeah. Now, I, uh, one thing I've learned very hard lesson over the last year or so is if I want to get writing done in a day, I get up in the morning, have my breakfast, drink my coffee and get my writing done and, and, then open Twitter. Yes. Um, if I do it the other way, if I if I start the day, pick up the phone, look at Twitter, there's no writing getting done. Like literally not. Yeah. And uh, and you just give yourself over to it. And um, you know that's again not to like uh, draw too fatuous a connection. There used to be a time when there would just be stories. Um, so like the Watergate story, you would pick it up in the morning, you would read the newspapers, and you like go on with your day. And then it, you'd watch the six o'clock news because everybody did that back then and learn a little bit more about Watergate. And then you go to bed and then you get up in the morning and you know, the cycle would go and the twin, uh, the twin like jets of if you're a certain cohort, Twitter, another cohort, Facebook, and then a third cohort cable news. Um, the, the jet never turns off and, I saw somebody, or I heard somebody on, a, on another podcast describe it as we're living now in a never-ending now. Yes. Which is not the same thing as living in the moment and like appreciating the moment for what it is, but we're living in this constant now. So the thing that's happening right now is the most important thing that's ever happened, and it will be until we're in a different now, and that will be the most important thing. And it, it doesn't allow you to look backwards, and it hardly allows you to look forward. No. It's just now, and so when we're in this particular moment we're in, when the now is such a brutal and awful thing, 
it's both very good, but there's there's a little twinge of sadness that, or sadness might not be the right word of this feeling of like how long can this now maintain before before some we move thing. on and yeah before uh, some other awful thing because the last <clears throat> now was the worst global pandemic since the Spanish flu like yeah. like contagion Soderberg level contagion you know, deaths, death toll, you know, bodies lining the streets of places like New York City. And then the now is like what started was peaceful, then got, you know, the propagandized into violent protesters and looting and rioting. But really it was, no, it was mostly peaceful. There were a few looters and rioters, but then there was police violence that whipped it up into riots almost for the first yeah. few days that they happened. And now that that's quieted down, Peaceful protest after peaceful protest after peaceful protest. You just hope that the the maintenance of that focus and that energy and right now sort of the 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 loosening isolation, people can still focus on this as an important thing before the next chaotic, crazy thing comes along. Because right now it feels like it feels like progress needs to be made on this that is so yeah. that is literally hundreds of years overdue. Oh, for sure. And it and it's and it's welcome. Um I can't get out of my head. I saw like two weeks ago, so this is before um, George Floyd's death and all that, I, I saw a piece of graffiti online that somebody had just scrawled on a street in New York. What do you think is going to happen next? <laughs> and then something else happened, but I can't get that out of my head because I'm just imagining that graffiti is still there. Yes. And like now you, you're, you're like marching past that with your signs and you know, cops with rubber bullet guns. And I'll tell you, you know, I, you know I've been to a few protests. I should go to more. Um, but I went to one down at city hall last week that had a lot of cops and they were about 50, 50 with like half of them had rubber bullet guns. The other half had like fucking machine guns, dude. And it's real. It feels very real. And, um, you know, I'm just some writer who's trying to help out. I, 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 I you know, I'm really glad the, the kids today seem to be what they are, which, seems to be pretty cool. Um, I'm very happy about that. <laughs> yes. It's like they the, the, this current generation, um, this current generation that is growing up here and now are going to have the biggest influence on it. And it's so weird yeah. that, you know, there, I think a lot of us, it's so dumb, but you know, new Hollywood gives you a nostalgia for the bravery of the art and the, mm -hmm. and and how forthright you could be and how you could put your feet on the streets and go and march when things were happening and have the right conversations and have the right dialogue and be on the right side of it but um you know i think one thing that we can't discount is that it's scary as hell and it's stressful as hell and that you know i i don't think that the people who are going through it right now and this is what we can relate to those folk who did at the time i don't think they ever looked back on it fondly from a like, oh, that was a really fun time. That it was like, yeah. no, it was extremely stressful, but it was worthwhile. The juice was worth the squeeze. The the the, mm -hmm. the progress was worth our sleepless nights and you know threats of violence and the concern that we were going to get you know rubber bulleted and tear gassed or just shot or beaten in the streets uh, or arrested. Um, I think that that's you know that that ongoing dialogue is something that's so essential. Yeah. Oh, I agree. And, and it's all well, like you said, I mean, it's beyond overdue and, and I'm, I'm glad that it's happening now. And I just, I, you just hope that some part of it doesn't just get washed away in this never ending now. And some 
reform is the very least. I, you know, I'm, I'm totally on board with the concept of, of abolition and, and, and really tearing these structures down. But like, you just, you just don't want it like next week, a fucking comet's going to hit the earth, man. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> oh, no. don't, you, please don't jinx it. I was like, I'm like, don't say all the things that could be worse next week. I'm like, just think of it. Like soon, the, like a tsunami, a comet, a thermonuclear war. Like who? No, like it's yeah. just like who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, they're apparently they're going to unveil who killed the prime minister of Sweden thirty years ago. Did you hear about this? No. That this is uh, I, I knew nothing about this before yesterday, so uh, I'm no expert. But apparently, like thirty years ago, or some distance in the past. A, a prime minister of Sweden was literally murdered on the street, um, like shot in the back. And um, they arrested a guy for the crime and he was cleared, um, just some like street guy. And now they're saying they have the murder weapon and they're going to reveal probably who the killer is. Um, so just, who knows, man? It's going to wind up being, you know, <laughs> like the CIA and now we're at war with Sweden. Um, or... And uh, finally, a war we can win. For the, I'm just joking. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go to war with Sweden, um, and also do war. But um, anyway, who knows what's going to happen next? You know, we, we're we're due for something really funny. Um, you know, just like some. And I do think, and and I hope this isn't is taken the right way. Uh, Trump is supposed to be giving a speech on race um, and race relations, and apparently, it's being written by Stephen Miller, who is literally a white supremacist again. Um, and that's so ghastly that there's some part of me that thinks it's going to be like the darkest, again, Kubrickian, yeah. hilarious. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> well, that got dark there for a second. It's dark, but that's why I think this show is something that I feel like is so important to have these conversations now to like, Think about, think about our moment in history and look at the parallels and and it's not always about loving the text and just talking about that. I think one thing that I'm really enjoying about this iteration of the show, and I think it's I'm proud of it, is you can actually talk about the process of it and the aspiration of it to keep working is the is absolutely aspirational, but the world is different. And mm-hmm. the lines are different and it's, it's, it, there's a lot of things that are similar, but there's a lot of things that are different. I think underscoring some of those are really important. And we have to, if you can't laugh at some of this stuff, like I think people at the time, if you laughed about Nixon would have been a bad thing, but we all can't help but immediately laugh about Nixon. He became a giant joke. Like the thing that we can hope yeah. is that progress happens, you know, eventually Trump is ousted things and reform reformations happen and then in 20 years time we can all have a real good laugh like a really proper (laughs) laugh instead of one that ends with this sort of melancholic tone um because that's what it is but but it's great talking to you i'm looking forward to reading yeah yeah, i'm looking forward to reading your new book i'm looking forward to finishing it so you know (laughs) stay off Um, twitter in the morning stay off twitter in the morning i'm trying i'm gonna try and take that advice too i try and keep the phone away from me or something like that Indeed, man. Yeah, hey, look, as always, a pleasure. Any movie, you know, or not movie, call me up. We'll talk. You're the best, as always. I'll be calling you back about Zodiac. We'll uh, we'll need to talk about some police investigation and uh, 
some serial killers in that project coming up. Oh, and the Hurdy Gurdy Man. And the Hurdy Gurdy Man. Bless you. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon, brother. All right. Later, man. That was my incredibly talented and dear friend, Mr. Jordan Harper. Jordan, you can find all of his stuff and find him doom scrolling on Twitter at, at Jordan underscore Harper. That links off to all of his stuff, whether it's uh, him springing his latest writing gig on Hightown or uh, any of his new novels or his existing novels. She Ride Shotgun is simply one of the most unput downable neo-noirs that you could ever read. It is absolutely outstanding. Uh, I love chatting to Jordan and I definitely will on future projects. Thank you so much for listening to All the President's Minutes. Once again, uh, we are having an absolute bore. We're nearly an hour into this movie. 60 minutes of 138 minutes that are listed on this movie. And that does include credits, so it might be a little bit shorter in the end. But we are rapidly nearing the halfway point. Thank you so much for sharing passing it on, spruiking and uh, having conversations with us in dialogue. If you do want to reach out and you haven't yet, or if you want to again, at One Blake Minute is where you can find me. At ATPM Pod is where you can find the show. OneHeatMinute.com and mail at OneHeatMinute.com is the best place to look up the notes for every single episode or to reach out via email and check that out. We have an amazing array of shows on One Heat Minute Productions for you to investigate, for you to check out. So um, we hope that you do that. And uh, if you want to donate to the show, in the description, you can find a link to donate as a one-off or recurring. But sharing, rating, reviewing is enough. Thanks for listening to All the President's Men. And all the President's Minutes uh, with Jordan Harper and I today. We'll catch you on another episode soon.